Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 11, Faith the Size of a Pecan. I'm Brandon Seal. After their first few months on Galveston Island, the 14 surviving Narvaez expeditionaries knew that they had worn out their welcome. And so they decided to move on, to try for the Rio Panuco one more time. But when the date of their departure arrived, three of their companions were too ill to join them. The notary, a formerly hardy young man named Lope de Oviedo, and the expedition's treasurer were, in fact, so weak that they were barely even conscious. The healthy eleven debated what to do, certain that leaving behind the three was leaving them to die in this, quote, foreign and evil land, end quote. But it was spring. The barren country around them was as fruitful as it was ever going to be, and they couldn't risk waiting around to see if their three companions would even survive the disease that had already killed 75 or so of their fellow expeditionaries. And so they left. Soon after leaving Galveston Island, the healthy eleven came across another Narvaez expeditionary who had been living with a different group of natives on the mainland. This gave them hope that further ahead there might be others still, and the party of now twelve continued down the coast. Their number was soon reduced by drownings and starvation, however, to maybe eight or so. These eight eventually stumbled across the wreckage of one of the other rafts from that pitiful flotilla the previous year. And not long after that, a Castilian timidly emerged from the brush and presented himself to them. It was Figueroa, one of the four swimmers that the group had dispatched to go find Panuco just days after landing on Galveston Island back in November. The group peppered him with questions. Why hadn't he made it to Panuco? Where were the other swimmers? Where was the crew of the other raft that they had passed? But the story that he told wasn't a happy one. The previous winter, the winter of 1528-29, had been cold. And soon, two of the swimmers who had gone with him died from exposure. The third was killed by natives. All alone, Figueroa was soon captured by one of the nearby tribes and taken in. That was when he first heard rumors of the third raft, of more men like him who had landed nearby. And soon enough, he ran into a survivor from that third raft. The only survivor, it turned out, from that third raft. And this survivor's story was even more unhappy. The third raft had been the raft commanded by the friars. After crashing onto the Texas shore, the crew of the third raft also decided to make their way south down the coast. And they hadn't gone far before they had come across the fourth raft, that of their commander, Panfilo de Narvaez. Though if you're keeping track, we're still missing the fifth raft. And hopefully you remember that the first two rafts were Cabeza de Vacas and the one co-commanded by Castillo and Durantes that had both landed on Galveston Island back in November of 1528. We last saw Narvaez back in episode 5, when he essentially told his men that it was every man for himself. After a string of failures at initiating even basic diplomacy with various different North American tribes, Narvaez, it seems, had lost confidence in himself and become entirely distrustful of the natives of this new continent. And so as the survivors of the third and fourth rafts joined forces and began to march south along the beach, Narvaez decided to just stay on his raft and to float alongside them, to be a little better protected against this unintelligible and arbitrary new world. 
And yet, the new world would still find a way to get him. One night, as he was sleeping in his raft, a norther blew in, bringing with it violent winds. The storm pulled Narvaez's raft's anchor right off the sea floor and carried him out to sea. Panfilo de Narvaez, conqueror of Jamaica and Cuba and governor-to-be of La Florida, presumably died floating on the Gulf of Mexico. In the words of Andres Resendez, quote, surrounded by the enormous adelantamiento that he had failed to conquer, end quote. Infighting broke out amongst the survivors after Narvaez's disappearance, amid some pretty severe food shortages. The fighting eventually became deadly and took the lives of several of the survivors, including the lieutenant governor who had assumed command after Narvaez's disappearance. And of course, with each passing day, the food situation just got worse. And so the survivors resorted to the only logical option, quote, they sliced the dead into jerky, end quote. The party survived for a few months in this fashion, just waiting for the next man to die so they could eat him, not even trying to move on to Panuco or anywhere else. In part, because they still didn't know where Panuco was. Was it further down the coast? Or maybe they'd already passed it? Eventually, they ran out of crewmates to eat, though. By March 1st, 1529, only one man remained. A sailor named Esquivel. At that point, Indians swooped in and took Esquivel into their camp, which is where Figueroa soon found him. Esquivel didn't last much longer, however. Perhaps because of his ongoing communication with Figueroa, Esquivel's tribe eventually killed him. Unwilling to go on to Panuco by himself, Figueroa too had remained with his Indians until the survivors from Galveston Island had stumbled upon him here in the summer of 1529. The Galveston party took Figueroa with them, and soon the group of nine or so was moving on down the coast again. They made a pact amongst themselves, quote, not to stop even though they died until they came to a land of Christians, end quote. Just a few days later, however, perhaps near modern-day Rockport in Copano Bay, they were captured by an Indian band. Or maybe they gave themselves over as slaves to avoid starvation. Who knows? What we do know, though, because we've seen it elsewhere, is that old-world expeditionaries made lousy New World slaves. They didn't know how to forage in the unfamiliar environment, and they were already so weakened that they fatigued quickly under the burden of any real work. Their new masters soon came to resent having to care for them. According to a contemporary of Durantes and Castillo, who had read an account written by them, have I mentioned that we have sources other than Cabeza de Vaca for most of these events? More on that later. But according to this contemporary, quote, the Indians who held these men were more cruel taskmasters than even a Moor could be, end quote, which is meant to be pretty bad. And eventually, the cruelty became gratuitous. They became playthings for the boys of the tribe holding them. Quote, the boys pulled their beards every day by way of pastime. And if they became careless, the boys would pull their hair and be seized with great laughter, the best pleased in the world, end quote. Their lives became cheap. As we heard in the previous episode, three of the expeditionaries were killed simply because they moved from one house to another when they weren't supposed to. Two more were killed because one of the Indians had had a bad dream about them. And so by 1532, three years later, 
Only three were still living. The young Captain Alonso Castillo from Salamanca, the veteran Captain Andres Durantes of Bejar, and his slave, a black North African from Azenmur in modern-day Morocco, known to us as Esteban. In truth, there was little difference now between master and slave. Hunger was everyone's closest companion. These South Texas Indians lived by feast and famine, hunting what they could in the winter, occasionally bringing down a deer or even a giant woolly cow, as Cabeza de Vaca describes them, and then gorging on prickly pears in the late summer. But the early autumn months were always lean, and since the summer of 1532, there had been little to eat. Occasionally, the peoples of these lands were reduced to picking nuts and seeds out of the droppings of other animals. Second harvest, as anthropologists call it euphemistically. Yet here in the late fall of 1532, these three surviving expeditionaries had a feast to look forward to. Their bands had begun to travel north, from the prickly pear grounds toward the great nut harvest that filled their bellies for two months out of every year. They were headed toward the lower Guadalupe River, perhaps, near modern-day Victoria, Texas, where a nut-bearing tree abounded and yielded its fruit every November and December. The nuts reminded the Castilians of Galician hazelnuts, or of old-world walnuts, and indeed they may have been Texas walnuts, but most people today assume that they're referring to the fruits of the state tree of Texas, pecans. Castillo, Durantes, and Esteban's band was among the first to arrive that year like fans to a football tailgate party, getting there early to stake out the best spots. They had set up their camps and begun to fall into the rhythms of daily life, when one day, an Indian approached Durantes and told him some surprising news. A Christian, which is to say, a man that looked like him, was coming to that spot. Durantes didn't know what to make of it. Neither he, nor Castillo, nor Esteban, had seen any of the old expeditionaries since their arrival at that point on the coast, and from what they'd heard from other Indians, all of the others like them, including the ones that they'd left behind on Galveston Island, had perished. It wasn't hard to believe, frankly, given what these three themselves had had to endure. And so when one day, in late 1532, Andres Durantes saw the royal treasurer, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, come walking towards him beneath the pecan trees, Dorantes thought he was seeing a ghost, quoting Cabeza de Vaca here, quote, When he saw me, he was very frightened, because for a long time they had assumed that I was dead, end quote. It had been three years since Dorantes had seen any of his old expeditionaries, other than Castillo and Esteban. And the three of them didn't bother to think much about the old days anymore, so that by now it was as distant and unreal as a dream almost. But upon seeing Cabeza de Vaca, in processing who it was, Durantes's disbelief resolved itself into joy. It was a reminder of what had been and of what maybe could be again. Quote, we gave many thanks to God at being reunited, and that day was one of the happiest that in all our days we have enjoyed. End quote. Durantes then led Cabeza de Vaca to Castillo and Esteban, who were similarly astonished and overjoyed. They were overjoyed for a very particular reason. With Cabeza de Vaca in their party, they now had two swimmers, Cabeza de Vaca and Dorantes. It was too much before to expect the one swimmer, Dorantes, to carry Castillo and Esteban across every river that they would encounter. 
But with one swimmer now for each non-swimmer, they had a chance. And so after three years of cruel, quote, captivity, after three years of thinking about little more than trying to stay alive, the four old expeditionaries committed to start moving again, to attempt to return to a, quote, land of Christians, end quote. So I just have to ask myself, what in the world was it that gave men like this the motivation to keep moving? By this point, they were more than four years and thousands of miles removed from their homes. They had no actual idea where they were, to be honest, and no reasonable expectation of rescue or of ever reconnecting with their countrymen. They, in fact, had no reasonable expectation that they would even be alive tomorrow. So what was it that kept these castaways from just burying their heads in the sand and giving themselves up for dead? Well, it isn't a mystery. Cabeza de Vaca tells us, quote, The greatest help was God, our Lord, and we never doubted it. End quote. But I guess that I just have trouble understanding exactly what that means. And I should admit up front that I'm someone that's always struggled with faith. Not for lack of trying, I don't think, but it's almost like I didn't learn the grammar at an early enough age, so I'm always working to conjugate each concept individually, which then makes me lose sight of the larger meaning, and without the larger meaning, the individual concepts don't always make sense. But working through Cabeza de Vaca's account has really made me appreciate what I've been missing out on. The faith of Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban is a powerful and plainly useful thing to them. For example, it teaches them how to really appreciate it when they receive an unexpected blessing, which are pretty few and far between in this story. But without that kind of appreciation, it'd be easy to imagine these guys just falling into abject depression. At the same time, it seems to teach them to look inward when things are at their worst, not to blame the external forces that they have no control over, because that too would be a recipe for making yourself feel just totally powerless and helpless. I didn't notice these things, or I didn't focus on them, the first few times that I read Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, because there's so many instances of him thanking God or blaming his misfortune on his sins that they almost become like a part of the structure of the text, like punctuation or chapter breaks or something. Or maybe I just didn't know what to do with them. But with subsequent readings, I've tried to pay more attention. And yet even with that, I still haven't found a really good way to incorporate faith into my retelling of Cabeza de Vaca's story here. Because in many ways, Cabeza de Vaca's faith is utterly unexplainable, at least in an A follows from B follows from C kind of way. It's premised on the unknowability of God's plans and on the arbitrariness of the world. And this is something that Cabeza de Vaca even states up front in the prologue to his account in a really eloquent way. Quote, By fortune's will, or more accurately, through no one's fault, but solely through the will and judgment of God, one person ends up with greater service than he had first thought, and another finds just the opposite. The latter may be able to give no more evidence of his design than his own diligence, and even this remains at times so hidden that it remains undetected. End quote. This faith, this perspective really, is the four expeditionaries' greatest aid, consoling them, guiding them, and instructing them in how to deal with the ups and downs of life. And so when Cabeza de Vaca says something like, quote, As for me, I know to say that I always had complete confidence in his mercy and that he would carry me out of this captivity. And I always said as much to my companions, end quote. He's not only telling us something that I believe he actually believed, 
He's telling us what his faith taught him to believe in order to create the kind of mental resiliency that he needed to survive. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That a fairly useful way to maintain your sanity in a new world full of strange people operating with an entirely different and perhaps untranslatable worldview is to accept that there are more things unknowable in this world than knowable. And that seems to me to be a major difference between how we moderns view the world and how Cabeza de Vaca and frankly the Native Americans amongst whom he was living did. We think that everything in the world should be explainable. It doesn't strike me that most of the people in the 16th century believed that same thing. And interestingly, I think that accepting the unknowability of the world almost requires you to then accept that you are, and should want to be, in the service of something greater than yourself. If you can't know for sure why everything happens the way it does, well, at least you can try to line yourself up with whatever that force is that is moving things. And this service to God... This giving oneself over to his unknowable plan runs all throughout these expeditionaries' accounts. When Cabeza de Vaca appeared out of nowhere and walked into the pecan bottoms of the lower Guadalupe River, it reinvigorated Castillo, Durantes, Esteban, and even Cabeza de Vaca too, for that matter. It validated for all of them their faith. It proved to them that some greater power must have had some reason for bringing them back together. Quoting Cabeza de Vaca here, quote, And since God our Lord had been served to watch over me through so many hardships and misfortunes, and at the end to bring me into their company, they too decided to escape, and that I would help them cross the rivers and bays that we should run into, end quote. And in their minds, the reason why God had preserved Cabeza de Vaca and reunited him with the other three was obvious. The four of them were meant to try once again to reach the Rio Panuco. But they would have to wait. By the time they got their plan all worked out, it was January or so of 1533, and the pecans were played out, and the land south of them would yield nothing more until the prickly pear harvest next summer. They would have to endure, to survive, another seven or eight terribly uncertain months as slaves to their capricious masters. This is even worse if you put yourself in Cabeza de Vaca's shoes, because remember that he had just won his freedom in recent years by becoming a merchant. And he would have to give all that up and return to, quote-unquote, captivity. In exchange for room and board, Cabeza de Vaca gave himself over as a slave to Durantes' master. The blow was softened a bit by the fact that this slavery, however, seemed more temporary, seemed to be in the service of something else. If his previous life as a merchant had given him, quote, the freedom to go wherever he pleased, end quote, Cabeza de Vaca was willing to give that up now in favor of slavery, so long as that slavery was in the service of, quote, where God should wish to take them, end quote. On the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. Some of you have asked about good website recommendations for all things Cabeza de Vaca. And so I wanted to recommend here TexasBeyondHistory.net's series on Cabeza de Vaca. It's intended to support school curriculum on the subject matter, and there's some really great stuff in there at a very accessible level about Cabeza de Vaca, his companions, the Native Americans they encountered, the land they crossed, the flora and fauna they interacted with, and the legacy that they left behind. You can also find there the bibliography that Professor Alston Toms from Texas A&M used to pull it all together. 
So check out texasbeyondhistory.net for more. If you enjoyed this episode and think this is a story worth sharing, please tell one friend. And if you haven't already, please go rate and leave a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on therevardreport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, was composed by Kevin Graham and is available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>